Amen. I would ask you if you could keep standing as we read our passage for this morning. Uh, this morning we're looking at uh, the end of, of Acts chapter 4 into the beginning of Acts chapter 5. So uh, in Acts chapter 4, uh, 32 to chapter 5, verse 11. Now hear the word of the Lord. Now the full, member, full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained in soul, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, why was it not at your disposal? Why is it then you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came on all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And he said, yes. She said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the church and upon all who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord, and he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for the glory of his name and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we praise you for your word. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for your word, for your work in your church, in your people. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for the way that you not only have given us new hearts, regenerated us, caused us to be born again, but we praise you also, Holy Spirit, for the fact that you have applied the work of Christ to our lives and that we are saved through his work in your power. And we praise you, Holy Spirit, for the fact that, that you have not left us, Lord, to, to try to muddle through this life on our own, but that as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sent you to fill, to indwell your people for all time. From the new covenant, all of your people are indwelt with you, Holy Spirit, every day. There, you will never leave us. You are the seal of our inheritance. And we praise you, Holy Spirit, that you, have, that you are, are shaping us, molding us, making us more like Christ. 
We praise you, Lord, for the evidence that we see here of your work in the, old, in the early church of, of, of the proclamation of the gospel and of, of the, the great grace and the love that was filled in the body. And Lord, we shudder. Holy Spirit, we, we see what it takes place in the, in the hearts of those where you are absent. Lord, and we saw, we see how the, the church responded to judgment as great grace included great fear. May you cause us, all of us, to have a holy fear of God. May you cause us to see your holiness, triune God, and may you, you cause us to, to dread the thought of, of ever harboring, indwelling sin and sinning against you. Lord, do what you did in the early church in us. Fill us with love for each other and love for you. That your church might be built up in love. And may you use this, these, these, these words of, of mine that they are, I'm weak and I'm powerless to do anything. Lord God, you are strong and mighty to cause your word to dwell in the hearts of your people. To make it your word an instrument of grace, causing us to walk in light of the truths that we have received. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Please be seated. One of the best loved stories in the Old Testament is the defeat of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. Right, the kids sing, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. But we know the truth in that story that it wasn't actually Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. It was actually Almighty God who fought the battle of Jericho. And we rejoice in the victory that the children of Israel received over a much more powerful foe. As the Lord commanded the men of Israel to march around the walls of Jericho six times, once each day, but on the seventh day, they were to march around the, the walls of the city seven times. And on the, the seventh time, they were to shout and to blow trumpets. And the Lord promised that the walls would fall down flat. And we know that they obediently followed the Lord's command to the letter. And, and sure enough, they, they blew on the seventh time, on the seventh day, they blew the trumpets and shouted and the walls of the city fell down flat, and each of the men who surrounded the city went straight up into the city and sacked the city, just devoting everyone in the city to destruction, except for Rahab and her family as they had promised. They burned the city with fire, and they, they took the, the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron and put them into the treasury of the house of the Lord, just as God had commanded them, or so we would think. The chapter ends with the words, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Israel had triumphed over her enemies in the power of God through the miraculous intervention of the Lord. They defeated a much more powerful foe than themselves in their flesh. But Israel was about to face another enemy. A dangerous enemy who would be responsible for the deaths of many of their countrymen. Joshua and the children of Israel faced many enemies, dangerous enemies, but this enemy is perhaps the most dangerous, most dangerous of all. Because this time the enemy was within. 
There was sin in the camp. Joshua 7.1 But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now this is best translated, Achan kept back some of the devoted things. They were told to take all of the, the, the booty from the, the city of, of Jericho and it was to go into the Lord's treasury. But Achan, we were told, kept back some of the devoted things. So as a result, when they marched against the city of, of Ai boldly because they, they, they only sent 3,000 men because they were so confident that it was so easy to destroy Jericho in the Lord's power, they only sent 3,000 men. But when they attacked Ai, what happened? They were routed. The people of Israel fled and, and 36 of their men were killed. And Joshua had no idea why. It looked like the Lord had deserted them. But the Lord revealed to Joshua that Achan was the culprit and commanded that he and his family were to be stoned to death. Now that sounds harsh. But here we see a picture. One person's sin in the camp affected everyone in the camp. Sin had to be dealt with before the people of God could advance as the people of God. We see a parallel situation in our passage this morning. The church has just won a major victory. Peter and John, after, after healing, the, the, after, through the Lord's power, healing the, the lame man at the gate of the temple, the beautiful gate, stood up and preached. And, and remember, the, the men of the, the Sanhedrin, initially the Sadducees, came and, and arrested them. They put them in jail overnight. And the next day, the Sanhedrin, the, the same men who had, the same wicked men who had crucified Jesus, now came after them and commanded them, commanded Peter and John not to speak or to teach any more in the name of Jesus. But they boldly replied, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard, Acts 4, 19 and 20. And so being afraid of the response of the people because of the miracle, the men of the Sanhedrin threatened them and let them go. And then Peter and John immediately returned to their friends in the church and relayed what had happened. And together the church prayed that they too would continue to speak God's word with boldness. God immediately answered their prayer. The place was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak with boldness. And even as we continue with the end of chapter 4, there's still a note of victory and unity. Here we're introduced to Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement. He's going to figure prominently in Acts as Paul's missionary companion. And Barnabas, we're told, sold a field and laid the money at the apostles' feet. It's a touching picture of, of devotion and generosity. Again, this, this, uh, this is victory. This is, this is unity. The, the people uh, were of one heart and, and one soul. But were they? The church was unified, or so it would seem. Those with houses and lands sold them and gave the proceeds to help the poor, or did they? The apostles continued to preach powerfully, and, and great grace was upon them all. But was all really all? Did, was God's grace, great grace upon all of the people who were gathered there? 
There is sin in the camp. We're going to be introduced to two more figures, but their part in the narrative of Acts is much more brief. Ananias and Sapphira, like Barnabas, sold a field, but they conspired to lie about the amount for which it was sold and decided to keep back some of the money for themselves. And both are struck dead by God for their their deceit. Luke's emphasis has been on the Holy Spirit's work in the hearts of believers in bearing witness for Christ in word and deed. And however, in this passage, we also see what happens in the hearts of those in whom the Holy Spirit is not at work. In the hearts of unbelievers who masquerade as Christians. And we see the consequences that take place in their lives. So Luke here, in his masterful narration, presents Two contrasting examples, one of generosity and another of hypocrisy. It reveals two contrasting powers that work in the church, that of the Holy Spirit and of Satan. And he highlights two apparently contrasting features in the church, great grace and great fear. So this passage reveals in verses 32 to 37, believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Verses, chapter 5, 1 to 6, unbelievers lying to the Holy Spirit. And in verses 7 to 11, unbelievers testing the Holy Spirit. So first of all, verses 32 to 37, believers filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke once again provides one of his, his summary statements describing life in the burgeoning church. They were of one heart and one soul. They they shared their possessions with those in need. The apostles were powerfully bearing witness to the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. Luke is, again, he's showing us the work of the Holy Spirit in dwelling believers. Now, it's the, the, the unity was a beautiful picture of what God does in the church, and it's, it's often harder to have unity in a, in a large church. But this is, was proof that it's, it's possible, provided that the church is truly grounded in God's truth. That the believers were of one heart and one soul. They, they were unified in a common faith. They had single-minded devotion to the Lord and love for each other. They were unified in the bond of love and it showed in the way that they cared practically for one another. Luke goes then into into further detail uh, about what the sharing of the possessions look like. As as David Peterson explains, the sharing of material blessings among believers is portrayed as a particular sign of the grace of God at work in this community. In other words, the, the God's grace is being poured out on the church. And, and by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, they're pouring out love on, on one another so, so that there was not a, a needy person among them. Deuteronomy 15.5 speaks of this, this covenantal blessing as a sign of God's grace. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Now in the, the wider culture, in the in the in the Greco-Roman culture in Jerusalem at this time was, was really more of a, of a, a Greco-Roman city than it was a Jewish city. Okay, it was, it was, Jerusalem was, was in, in occupation by 
by the Romans, it, it had a very Roman flavor to it. And in that culture, a friendship often involved reciprocity uh, among social equals. People attended, attended to associate only with those of the same social class, the wealthy with the wealthy, the middle class with the middle class, and the poor with other poor. And really, that, that's, that's often the case in our culture as, as well. But, but one primary difference between that culture and, and our culture was in that culture, the, the middle class was a very small minority. It was only about 10% of the population. And, and the poor, the, the upper class rather, was, was made up of an even smaller percentage. That, that meant that the majority of, of that population was poor. Roughly 80% of the population lived hand to mouth. And many, many of these people were, were truly impoverished. And this would have been even more the case, even more than in the general population, that, that, that many of the Christians were poor. Because remember how Paul would remind the Corinthians um, some 20 years later that not many of you are, are, were wise according to worldly standards, not many of you were powerful, not many were of noble birth. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. The, the majority, the vast majority of the people in the church would, would have been poor. So again, there would have been wealthy people in the church, but they would have been in the small, small minority. And that's really still the, the case for, for many Christians around the world today. That, that if you look around in, in, in many countries, that, that even especially poor countries, that the poorest of the poor are, are Christians because they are, they are on the outside looking in. They're, they're actively even systematic, systematically opposed by the, the government and, and by society. And so the poorest of the poor in, in many countries around the world are Christians, are brothers and sisters. But in our church, however, humble as she, she may be, many of us, not all of us, are wealthy by world standards. We not be, may not be wealthy by societal standards, but by world standards, we are a wealthy people. So needless to say, there would have been quite a number of needy people in that congregation. There was no welfare. There, there was no employment insurance. There was no social safety net. The, the poor were very vulnerable. Just consider the lame man who had just been, been healed through the ministry of, of Peter and John. Up until his healing, he had depended entirely on begging for his food. And now he was healed, but he didn't have any skills. He'd, he'd never had a job. At least initially, he would have had to continue to depend on the charity of others. And so, so for him and, and for many, many like him, the people who owned houses and lands sold them and laid the money at the apostles' feet so it could be distributed among the needy. Now soon the apostles would divest themselves of this responsibility. It, we'll see that in Acts chapter 6 that they will, will hand the, this, this ministry over to other gifted men. But for now it was, was given to the responsibility of the apostles to distribute it the money among the needy. Now, from the, the verb form that's used here and from the context, it's revealed that they weren't silly, simply selling all their possessions at once and distributing all of it, but, but more, more that it was gradual as the need arose. 
The people did not consider their possessions as their own, as belonging to them, but belonging to God. And they were therefore to be used to show love and service to others. But in our day, in, in a, a radical twisting of, of the principle of sowing and reaping, those who, who teach and believe that the so-called prosperity gospel, the, the health and wealth gospel, which is no gospel at all, that, that it, say that if you, if you sow seed money, that you will reap wealth. As Derek Thomas points out, such views often forget the very point that's being addressed in the passage before us, that Christians should consider the needs of the poor and the disadvantaged among them. So they weren't giving to get. They were giving to give out of love with no thought for what they would return. Others wrongly say that this was an early form of communism. But listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. This Christian community was the antithesis of communism. Communism imposes an equality. In the early church, there was a voluntary equality and rejoicing in that. Nothing was done in a spirit of fear because of the secret police were watching you and you had no choice. It was the exact opposite of some imposed system, end quote. This was the self-imposition of love. This was the overflow of of the love that these Christians had received from God. It was overflowing as those who have received and, and are conscious of the love of God. They were wanting to, to spread that love among the church. The, 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 the middle and upper class Christians in the early church cheerfully gave to the needy without any expectation of return. Now, Jesus spoke of this kind of giving in Luke 6, 34. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is to you? Even sinners lend to others and get to get back the same amount. But they loved each other, and so they happily helped each other as they could. They, they were living out Galatians 6, 10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. They were a family and so they sought to love and to serve each other as family. And brothers and sisters, I see that here in this church family. Your generosity is, is such an encouragement. As your pastor, not only am I the recipient of your loving generosity, I've seen your generosity regularly in the lives of of others, certainly financially, as people who have just blown, they've, they've blown me away with the, the generosity that they've shown each other's lives. Seeing a need and recognizing a need and, and seeking to, to give to one another as those who have received from God. But, but not even just in financial ways, but, but in but in, in making meals for each other and looking after each other's kids and, and helping with moves and, and, and even the, the way that people chip in to help out with the, with the church building and property. This is a reflection of that. Brothers and sisters, in this, in this little church, you, you are living out what was here in evidence in the early church. And we need to praise God for that because that is God's work in our hearts. 
In verse, verses 36 and 37, we're introduced to a specific individual who's presented as exhibit A of loving generosity. Thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, Barnabas, as I mentioned earlier, will figure prominently in the, in the book of Acts as, as Paul's missionary companion. Barnabas, we're told, was, was from Crete, an, an island in the Mediterranean not far from Greece. The Jews had, had settled in, on Crete um, after 330 BC during the Ptolemaic period. Barnabas, we're told, was of the house of Levi, the, the family from whom ministers in the temple were drawn. Now, generally, Old Testament requirements forbade Levites from owning property. However, there were exceptions. You see that in the the life of of Jeremiah, who was a Levite but was commanded to to buy a field. And and clearly the circumstances were different for a Levite living on an island far from Israel. Again, Barnabas is going to play a major role in Paul's missionary journeys. He's presented here as exemplary in the way that he gives generously to care for the poor. Later, he will embrace Paul when, when others are still suspicious. He is exemplary in the way he encourages Paul and serves by Paul's side and by the way he bears witness to Christ among those whom he encounters. In Acts 11.24, Luke says, Barnabas was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Again, he demonstrates the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. In fact, as Luke explains, the meaning of the Aramaic moniker Barnabas is a son of encouragement in Greek. The the Greek word comes from the root of one of the titles of the Holy Spirit, parakletos. It's often referred to as comforter. Barnabas is presented as an example of of a person that is characterized, that is characterized in whom the Holy Spirit is at work in his character and his generosity. May we, all of us, as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who are dwelt with the Holy Spirit, be examples of what it looks like to have the Holy Spirit at work in us. May we, all of us, as believers in Jesus Christ, be sons and daughters of encouragement. But now with chapter 5, the story shifts from generosity to hypocrisy, from belief to unbelief, from grace to judgment, from distribution to discipline. So in Acts chapter 5, 1 to 6, we see, first of all, unbelievers lying to the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 1 begins with the word, but. And this is a reminder here that, that when you're reading your Bible, don't be distracted by the start of a new chapter. This passage here, the first part of of chapter 5, goes with the end of chapter 4. It goes with what has come before. Little words like like but and and therefore in the Word of God point to the connection with what has just been been said. So Barnabas here was presented as a generous Christian, but Ananias and his wife are presented as a stark contrast. Ironically, the name Ananias means the Lord is gracious. God is gracious, but Ananias wasn't. 
God is gracious, but God is also holy and righteous. What Ananias and his wife do is presented in identical terms to what, to what, to what Barnabas has done. Barnabas sold a field, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property, brought part of the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, they're, they're set up to be in, in opposition to each other. They are opposite examples to teach us one lesson. They kept back part of the proceeds for themselves. And this is exactly the same term that is used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, to describe the sin of Achan in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, in, in keeping back or in, in taking what was meant to be devoted to God. Ananias and Sapphira committed fraud. They, they lied about their money to make a show of piety. The, their reputation what was more important than allegiance to God and God's reputation. Their love of self was greater than the love of community. Look back at, at chapter 4, verse 32. Again, the believers were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. The community of believers had one heart and soul. The community of believers did not say that their possessions belonged to them. But Ananias and Sapphira are here presented as a syllogism. Again, in, in the opposition to the, the community of the, of the church. They lied about sharing their possessions. They were not of one heart and soul. Therefore, they were not part of the community of believers. They were full of pride and deceit. Ananias and Sapphira made a show of submission to the apostles. They made a show of devotion. They made a show of charity. They made a show of community. They made a show of Christianity. The Holy Spirit indwelt the believers, and this was evident in their love for one another. The absence of the Holy Spirit was evident in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira, that they would have appeared to, to many among them as, as believers. Just think about for the, the gathered people. As Ananias came in and bowed at the, the feet of Peter and, and put the money there, people think, oh, Look how generous Ananias is. And that's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira wanted. But God knew their hearts. And Peter is about to reveal their hearts, the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, the visible church, now and then, is always a mixed church. The church is always a mixed church. It is, it is made up, the visible church is, is always made up of wheat and weeds, of believers and unbelievers. And sometimes believers, or rather unbelievers, can look like believers. And sometimes unbelievers can look, sorry, sometimes unbelievers can look like believers, and sometimes believers can look like unbelievers. All of us at times, even committed Christians at times, can look like unbelievers through our actions. What's in the heart that is true? And what is in the heart will eventually be revealed. Quite often in, in the church, both wheat and weeds will, will grow up alongside one another and sometimes even for a long season. 
And sometimes, like in the chapter we have before us, they are moved quickly. But either way, judgment and justice will come. As John MacArthur says, time and truth go hand in hand. And I've, I've seen it happen repeatedly, even in my relatively short 12 years as a pastor of this church. God will expose the truth in his timing. I tremble under that. I hope you tremble under that too. In some respects, maybe it's harder because there's fewer people. I don't want anybody to think I'm, I'm eyeballing you as I preach this sermon. There's not enough looks to go around. But again, it's not what's in my sight. It's, a, it's, it's in God's sight. God is the just judge. I am a very fallible judge. But God is not. In this case, judgment and justice come swiftly. Verse 3, Ananias comes in and Peter addresses him. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, Peter here had prophetic insight. Like the Lord Jesus Christ, in this instance, he could see what was in people's hearts. Satan had filled the heart of Ananias, inciting him to lie. Now, Luke reserves this kind of, of terminology for sins like that of Judas. Luke 22.3, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. But as we saw with Judas, Satan cannot make someone do what is not already in their heart. Like Judas, Ananias and Sapphira find the money is a stumbling block. I think for Ananias and Sapphira, again, I think it goes deeper. I think the, the issue is actually that more that they, they wanted to have a reputation in the church. And so they presented this false show of piety to, to look better than they were. What is happening with Ananias and Sapphira is contrasted with the work of the Holy Spirit from verse 31. It is not the Holy Spirit at work in their hearts, but that of another power, Satan. Ben Witherington says, Luke sees this story not as being about human greed and duplicitous actions, but an invasion of the community of the Spirit by the powers of darkness, by means of Ananias. Brothers and sisters, Satan has many tactics up his sleeve. He's tried to attack the church from the outside. But persecution from the outside only galvanized the church. It made them pray for boldness. Sin from within is a greater danger. Satan was trying to undermine the love and unity in the church. Lying destroys trust and destroys community. Remember, this, this whole section is about what the Holy Spirit does in the hearts of believers. And here we see evidence of, of what Satan does in filling the hearts of unbelievers. And we get a glimpse of the eternal consequence. Peter says to, to Ananias that the property was theirs. They, they could have kept it. When they sold it, they could have done whatever they wanted with the proceeds. The, the issue wasn't keeping back some of the money. It was lying about it. Look at the end of verse 5. You have not lied to man, but to God. 
And so this taken with verse 2 is an important doctrinal statement. Lying to the Holy Spirit equals lying to God. The Holy Spirit is God. Ananias wanted to appear pious in the community. He wanted to appear more generous than he really was. He was seeking approval from men and not from God. He was fearing man, not God. And in this, his deception mirrors that of Achan. Dennis Johnson says that, that, that like Achan, he was scorning both the knowledge and holiness of God in the midst of his people. His action was a falsification of what the Spirit was doing and prompting the community to be and to do. Right? Do you see that? It's like he was mocking the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers by faking it. And so he was lying to God. Brothers and sisters, I need to ask the question, do we do that? Do we do that? Do we do this not just in, in our giving, but, but do we want to appear more holy, more spiritual than we really are? Is our spiritual life a show? Is it a sham like it, it was for Ananias and Sapphira? Now, in some cases, it's, it's the show of an unbeliever. In some cases, it's only show. But I think we're honest, we'll have to admit that all of us at times are, are, are tempted to want to appear more spiritual than, than we really are. Are you fearing man instead of fearing God? Are, are you being real? Is your piety a show? What could you and I ever do to add to the grace of God? Our sin, all of our sin, has been put on Jesus Christ. He bore the guilt. He bore all of the guilt for those who are trusting in him. And that's only part of the gospel. The other half is that all believers have been credited with the righteousness of Christ. Do you understand what that means? It means that you have been declared righteous by Almighty God. That the verdict, the eternal verdict that is upon Jesus Christ is upon you and me. What could we ever think to do to add to that? What do we have to prove to anyone when we have been declared righteous by Almighty God? May we, all of us, as those who have been credited with the righteousness of Christ, show through the power of the Holy Spirit that the righteousness of Christ being worked out in our lives. Again, we will never measure up to Christ's standard. But in the only court that really matters... We've already been credited with the, the verdict that's on Christ. But Ananias and Sapphira did not get that. So they were still striving in their flesh 
to appear something other than what they really were. I wonder, just as a practical way to work this out, I'm not saying that you need to stand up here and broadcast all of your sins to the body. I think that would be unwise at best. But are you accountable? Are you seeking out real relationships with your brothers and sisters? Are there those within the body that, that you have, have so, that, that you are, are so connected with? That there's, there's nothing, no secrets between you. I would encourage you, if you are, if you are dwelling and living and walking in secret sin, take heed. Be warned in the example of Ananias and Sapphira. And seek fellowship as a means of grace that, that will, will help you to overcome whatever sin that is. That, that, that it's as though you're thinking it's so bad that the blood of Christ can't cover it. Please, please be warned from the example of Ananias and Sapphira. But Ananias had his heart revealed. And in verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and fear came upon all those who heard it. Can you imagine? For those, those standing around, all of a sudden he dropped dead right at Peter's feet. That's terrifying. And it should be terrifying. We're warned elsewhere in Scripture before taking the Lord's Supper that, that we are, that we are to, to consider ourselves, to examine ourselves before eating and drinking at the table so that we do not eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Brothers and sisters, be warned. Examine your heart before the Lord. Examine your heart before the Lord. He breathed out his last. This, this, is, a, a, this is medical terminology used here by, by Dr. Luke to, to reveal what, what has happened. He's, he's expired. It's the same term that's used to describe the death of Herod in, in Acts chapter 12, where he is eaten by worms and then expired. Horrific. But what is more horrific for Herod and for Ananias and for Sapphira is what happens next. This was the, the first example of church discipline in the, the new, in the newborn church. Now, it sounds harsh. And in one sense, it is. But it was necessary. Here in the, the early church, it, it, like with the sin of Achan at, at, after the, the battle of Jericho, they tried to enter Ai, the, the church could not advance with sin in the camp. It had to be dealt with. If it was not dealt with, that sin would spread and it would contaminate many. So the church then, as now, must deal with sin. We have been given, in God's word, we've been given several different examples of, of, of what church discipline means to look like. It's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. We'll often go to, to Matthew 18. It's probably the most, most developed a passage regarding church discipline. Let's just, just go there for a moment to Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. 
So first of all, you can see there's a verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go privately and tell him his fault. If he listens to you, praise God. You, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen, now you take one or two others as witnesses. And then if he, if he, they still, if he still does not listen, then you take it before the church. And then if he still doesn't, won't listen to the church, then he's to be excommunicated. So he's, he's not to receive the, the bread and the cup at the, the Lord's table. Now, this is, this is to be done. This is really, the, the process is, is not harsh. If you consider it in its context, you know, Peter was shocked by, not by the discipline part, but, but by the forgiveness part. He says to Jesus after, he says, he says, Lord, will my, how often will my, bro- my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus says, no, I say to you not seven times, but 70 times seven. He goes on to, to tell the parable of the unforgiving servant. The, the issue here is, is, is it's not meant to be harsh. Now, the, the, in the process of, of church discipline, the, the, you can see it here in this process, that it's, it's in hopes that the person will repent. Similarly, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, another example of, of church discipline. Again, it's not a one-size-fits-all. This is where there is sexual immorality in, in, in the church, and I won't go into the details, but, but there is a particularly heinous form of sexual immorality taking place in the church, and there's no one, two, three. This is immediately taken before the church. And then he says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He says, do not even associate with a person who is sexual or moral, uh, versus First uh, Corinthians 5, 9. Not mean the sexual moral of the world, or greedy, or swindle, or idolater, since you'd have to go out of the world, but I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother, if he is guilty of sexual morality, or greed, or idolater, or viler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? This is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Similarly, if somebody is, is spreading false doctrine, now this is such a sin that you could... I think there's a place to, to warn the person, but there's a time to just go straight to say, to, to take them before the church. Now, we're, we're a congregational church. I, I have, as, as one of the pastors of this church, I have, have no authority to exercise church discipline. Right? You understand that. The, the local church, we are a congregational church, and so the, 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 it is the church that exercises church discipline. In, in, in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, it's, it's, it's take it before the church. And then the church will decide. And the purpose here, again, it's, it's in hopes that the person will repent. But if they won't, it's also for the purity of the church. It's for the, the purity of the church. It's, it's so that the, the church will, will, will have holy fear of God. And so that, that sin, whatever it is, won't spread in the church. You know, I've experienced, I've seen what happens when, when the sin of gossip and slander spread in, the, in a church and defile many. And when certain forms of immorality spread, it, it spreads in the church. And so the church must deal with these things or the whole church will be corrupted by these things. It's ultimately for the glory of God in the church. So this is... is the first example of church discipline. Now we hope we never see someone dropping dead. But this is a, as a picture of, of church discipline. This is what is being, being described as a, a punitive miracle. 
Right? It's a miracle every bit as much as, as when the man was healed. It's, it, and that was a, was a picture of, of is, is a picture of end times healing. Uh, the, the power of God is, is, is filling someone up with worship. But this here is a, a, is a punitive miracle. It, it's it's a, a, a living parable. Dennis Johnson says that the judgment that fell immediately on Ananias and Sapphira was a sign foreshadowing the full and final judgment of deceivers at the Messiah's coming. Just as the lame man's leap previewed the full resurrection healing that the Messiah will bring when he appears from heaven. So this, this immediate judgment was a, was a picture of end times judgment. Otherwise, we, we would see that sort of thing taking place a lot more than we do in our culture. And who knows, but maybe, maybe we'll see those days again, maybe before long. But we certainly, at the return of the Lord, will see what this judgment fully and finally means. And when we think about it, as we think about it, again, we, we examine our own hearts, we realize that it's only the mercy of God that keeps this sort of thing from happening all the time. It, it's only the mercy of God that keeps this from happening to you and me. We can thank God that we are not saved by our righteousness, or we're all doomed. We're saved by Christ's righteousness as he was punished in our place. And so when this happened, again, great fear came on all who heard it. If you won't fear God, others will fear when they see what happens to you. Great grace has given way to great fear. But don't be mistaken, the fear of the Lord is a gracious thing. The fear of the Lord is a, is a sign that God's grace is continually upon the church. It's, it's continually abundant in the life of the church. This, this great fear is great grace. Because it becomes now a, a, a an ability to spur people on so that they do not fall into fear themselves. Then the young man rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. This unceremonious burial reflects God's judgment. Remember, that if you, as you look through redemption history, you can see that the idea of, 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 a bur, of a, having a, an honorable burial was important. You see, if you look, just think about, about first and second kings, and you see there's more second kings, and you see that the, the kings that, that honored God are more often are, are buried with their fathers, but those who, who did not are, are unceremoniously either burned or, or cast aside or somehow otherwise their, their bodies are destroyed. Jay Derrett says that, that when a man has been struck down by the hand of heaven, as Joshua specifically says with the, was the case with, with Achan in, in Joshua 7.25, his corpse must be consigned rapidly and silently to the grave. No one should mourn him. But now, with the example of, of Sapphira, in verses 7 to 11, we see unbelievers testing the Holy Spirit. Three hours later, Ananias' wife, Sapphira, arrives, oblivious to what has happened to her husband, but not oblivious to her husband's sin. She had shared in his sin. And Peter gives her an opportunity to repent. He asked her how much the land had been sold for. However, her heart was hardened. She continued to lie. She continued her collusion. And Peter now convicts and condemns her for the sin using slightly different terminology. Verse 9. How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? They had agreed together to test 
the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is another way to refer to the Holy Spirit. They were testing the Holy Spirit. They were testing God or tempting God, much as Israel had done in the wilderness by demanding food and water. Repeatedly, that's referred to in those terms as of, of testing or, or tempting God. Again, this reveals the hand of Satan. Like when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he wrote in Matthew 4, 7, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And this too mirrors the sin of Achan. As Ananias and now Sapphira were seen as boldly sinning against God. A, a complete high-handed sin directly against God. Again, is this something that we do? Have we gotten high-handed in our sin? Maybe because you haven't seen directly the consequence of the sin, maybe you, you, become, you, you become proud and, and bold in your sin. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Now, in the life of a true believer... We see the long suffering of God. We, we see the, the kindness of God is, is meant to lead us to repentance. But in the heart of an unbeliever, the, the, the delay in justice actually causes them to be hardened in their sin. And I, see, I think we see this in our culture. As our culture is becoming more and more high-handed in their sin, even to the extent that they will say, God, you can't even declare whether I'm male or female. I believe our culture has been given over to judgment from God. They've been given over to their sin. So Peter now pronounces God's judgment on Sapphira. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Like her husband, she fell down at Peter's feet and breathed her last, while the, and the young man carried her out and buried her next to her husband. This is another living parable. And this is an, a, another example of, of the immediate church discipline to the full extent. And this provided protection for the church to see the holiness of God and the justice of God and how God deals with sin. Again, we did not witness these things with our eyes. It did not happen right here in this building. But may all of us May all of us be filled with great fear at the thought of sinning against the holy God. Again, great grace has given way to great fear. And this fear also extends into the wider community. It, it, and as such, as such, it prepares the way for the gospel. But again, these are Christians who fear the Lord. May we, by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, grow in holy fear of God. Yeah, we don't see people dropping dead from church discipline. When a, when a, church, when a church goes to the, the final step of church discipline, we're saying that we, we cannot reasonably conclude from your behavior or your doctrine that you are genuinely a Christian. Again, we don't have prophetic insight like Peter did. But, but we're, we're hoping, again, that the person will come to repentance. But if not, for the sake of the, the purity of the church, 
that they will be removed from the church. It's, it's a gracious purpose in the lives of believers and hopefully even in the life at this stage of, of the unbeliever. The hope is that the person will repent and prove themselves to be saved. And if they, if, if they do not, then we treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. And what do you do with Gentiles and tax collectors? You tell them the gospel. You tell them you, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to turn away from your sins. We've talked about this before, but, but I really feel that, that in the broader visible church, that, that the fear of the Lord is largely absent, or, or at least a, a pale comparison to, to what, what we see here in the early church. But as Dennis Johnson says, the appropriate response to the blur, burning glory of the Spirit is fear. It's the appropriate response. He continues, in contrast to the abject terror that's evidenced in some pagan conceptions of a capricious and malevolent deity, the fear of the Lord is rooted in the assurance of his holiness, constancy, and justice. Those who fear the Lord rejoice in his grace, but are vividly aware that to violate his holiness is dangerous. I think it's a really good description of the fear of the Lord. We're, we're conscious of who God is. We're conscious of, of God's holiness. We're conscious of God's faithfulness. We're conscious of his grace and his mercy. But we're also conscious of God's justice. And so we, we tremble to not fall under that justice. We, we rejoice in his grace, but the grace of God is, is never, never becomes in the life of a believer an opportunity for lasciviousness. but rather seek to, to grow in holiness. Because we understand that to sin against God's holiness is dangerous. Very, very dangerous. So again, we see, as we've been seeing regularly, ever since Pentecost, we see that the Holy Spirit is at work in all the believers, the true believers in the newborn church. Barnabas is presented as an example and Ananias and Sapphira are presented as an exception. They are those who are also exempt. They're, they're, they do not have God's grace. And in so doing, they're also examples for us, but examples of people whose hearts are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but indwelt by Satan. Friends, this is what, what a real church is. Do you want to be a part of a community like that? As Sinclair Ferguson says, do you want to belong to a church where you only want to give part of yourself? Ananias and Sapphira were holding back. They weren't real. I wouldn't want to be part of a church where, where people are just holding back, where they're just, I'll just have my, my hour and a half or so Sunday morning. That's, that's, that's it's my church life. But to be real before God, to re be real before each other, that's what real church is. And it's in a church like that 
where you will grow in Christ-likeness, that you will increasingly, by the work of the Holy Spirit, they will reflect the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Again, this is not, there's no room for pride in any of this. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of true believers. Do you want to be part of a church that's all in? Then by God's grace, be all in. Be all in yourself. Be all into Christ yourself. Turn to Christ. Maybe you have been convicted of sin this, this morning. Turn to Christ for the forgiveness that can only be found in Christ. Rest in Christ for all that is accomplished for you. In a moment, we are going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate together what Christ has done for us. This is an opportunity for you to examine yourself, but not, not to, to, to morbid introspection. Not to think, oh, I'm not worthy. You're not worthy. I'm not either. If worthy people were the only ones who could take the Lord's Supper, nobody could take the Lord's Supper except Jesus himself. This is for those who are unworthy, but are running to the worthiness of Christ and resting in the worthiness of Christ. This is for people who are celebrating all that Christ has accomplished for their salvation. If that's you, then this is for you. This is for those who are, are not holding on to some secret sin, but it's all on the table before God confessing it to God and, and where appropriate to confess it to one another as well. Asking forgiveness from God, asking forgiveness from one another, and walking in the fellowship that has been purchased for us by Christ as, be, as being empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in that fellowship. And if that's you, then this is for you. If that's you, then this church is for you. Again, not that we've arrived in anything, but it's people who want to be like that. As people who want to be like Christ, warts and all. We trust that we're going to be sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who dwelt these believers and dwells us. The same Holy Spirit who empowered these believers empowers us to walk in light of the truths of the gospel that we have received and rejoice in. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for your great grace. Lord, we praise you for your great grace that was showered upon us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he was punished for our sins. As he walked perfectly righteously and as his righteousness is imputed to us, is credited to our account. As those who have no righteousness of their own but rejoice in the alien righteousness of Christ credited to us, we come before you as your blood-bought sons and daughters. Help us through the power of your Spirit to receive these, these emblems as a reflection of the gospel, as a reminder of the gospel. Lord, may this be a means of grace in our, in our lives that would cause us to... to Rejoice in your grace, but also to have a holy fear of you, to, 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 to think that it would be abhorrent to sin against the God who would send his son to die for our sins. 
Cause us through the power of your Holy Spirit to examine our hearts and, and to confess our sins to you and, and to, to make a commitment where necessary and appropriate to confess our sins to one another. Help us, Lord, to grow in grace as those who are the recipients of your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.